All right, today is the day, not only that the Lord has made, but we finish Matthew 11. Uh, We've spent a few weeks working through this rich chapter, uh, not just this rich chapter, but this rich section, uh, the last five or six verses, starting in Matthew 25. And just for the sake of remembering where we've been and how we got here, I want to read verses 25 through 30 and then make a few closing points for this chapter. So let's read together and then follow that with a quick prayer. Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, such was your gracious will, or that it pleased you to do this. Verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor, are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Holy Spirit, show us Christ. Show us the Word. And fill our hearts with joy unspeakable, peace unknowable. In your Son, Father, and Him alone. Amen. So, as we conclude Matthew 11, we have to conclude them by making a couple points. Uh, what, what we'll do is uh, a historical point. On redemption, because as you remember, the final portion of this chapter is focused on redemption. And so we have to connect what's being said here, specifically in verse 28, 29, and 30, to the history of redemption. Then we're going to conclude with a theological point on redemption, one that we've been walking through as we've started 25 and uh, on through 30. And then a closing point. On Christmas. So, a historical point on redemption. I didn't really notice this ever until this week that there's a, a word that books, bookends this chapter, and it's the word come. If you remember, the chapter starts with John the Baptist sending his disciples to, to Jesus and asking him, Are you the one that is to come, who is coming into this world? And then Jesus finishes this chapter, closing his statement on answering that question by saying, Come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Now, Jesus, 
is taking us back into time when he makes this statement. He's taking us back into the history of redemption, which I, I need us to understand. Redemption did not start at the cross. Redemption did not start with the prophets prophesying of the one to come. Redemption didn't start with the Davidic covenant or with the Mosaic covenant or with the Abrahamic covenant. It didn't even start in the garden. But as we've seen, it started in the eternal mind of God. From before the foundations of the world were laid, God planned to save people through His Son. We, you, are but a microcosm of the plan of redemption. And I don't mean that to belittle your redemption, but to give you hope encouragement, and maybe a little humility. Because as we walk through life and we have bad times, it's good to remember that we are but a small bit of an eternal, infinite plan that will go on and last forever. It gives us comfort and encouragement to know that the bad times this day, this week, are minuscule in the divine glory that we have been brought into that will last forever. Okay? But then in the good times, it's good to remember that we are just a small blot on the history of redemption because there are some times we need to remember that we are small. When things are going well and we have the temptation to puff up our chest or hold our head high on what we have done, we need to be humbled and remember that we are just a portion of the infinite, eternal kingdom of God that will be filled as with citizens that number the stars and the sands on the sea. So it's good for us to remember that there is not just us in the history of redemption, but it goes back not just to Israel, but to all time. So how does Jesus do this? Well, he flashes a little Bible knowledge here. He connects himself to a well-known passage, which we read uh, earlier in our scripture reading. The, the section being Jeremiah 30 through 33. And this is a good Bible reading or studying tip for you, especially when you're reading the words of Jesus. It's good to remember that he is not untethered, but that he's connected himself and that you could probably find an, uh, an, uh, an allusion to something in the Old Testament when Jesus speaks. And this is what he does when he makes this statement in verses 28 and 29. Let's go back to Jeremiah and look at it again as we read it earlier with the specific focus on verses 30, I'm sorry, on chapter 30, verse 8 and 9. might be a good idea this week to read Jeremiah 30, 31 at least, if not 32 and 33. Because what we get in Jeremiah 30 through 33 is a change of tone for Jeremiah's ministry. It's been a very bleak, uh, a very depressing ministry for Jeremiah as he's been prophesying judgment, oppression, Exile, And then he gets 
to what he has to prophesy in Jeremiah 30 and 31, 32 and 33. He gets to the good news, the restoration of Israel, but not just the restoration of Israel, but a new covenant. It is an amazing section. It is amazing prophecy. Jeremiah 30 through 33. Jeremiah starts this section with consolation. We just sung of the consolation of Israel. The comfort that's to come to them through this restoration and new covenant. Jeremiah begins to proclaim this proclamation, this good news, this consolation that comes to Israel. And if you remember Simeon, Remember Simeon in Luke 2 as he's awaiting what in the temple? The consolation of Israel. And what was that that he was promised to see? This consolation of Israel. The Lord's Christ. The Messiah. The one who is to come. Look what he says in verse 8. And it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break... His yoke, that would be Israel's yoke, or I'm sorry, the oppressor's yoke from off your neck, your being Israel. I will break his yoke from off your neck. I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall make or no more make of you as servants. The yoke of foreigners and rulers and their oppressors are to be removed from uh, from Israel, their yoke of being servants and in bondage will be no more, Jeremiah proclaims the good news that is spoken. But it's not just as if a yoke is taken away and their bondage to servitude will be removed. But he says that he will do this in a way where they will continue to be yoked and continue as servants. So notice verse 9, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king. Their servitude remains, but their servitude would be to the coming one, David the king, whom God will raise up. Is this not what we are looking at, celebrating, meditating on? The, the birth of a new king the raising up of the son of David. You will be yoked, God says to Israel, you will be yoked to the one who is coming. Now we think about this for a second, this idea of them removing the yoke of a foreign oppressor and putting upon them the yoke of Christ. Here's the thing that we all have to understand this morning. It's not whether you will be yoked, But it's to what you will be yoked. It's it's as if you are not able to live a life of freedom. You will never be free. You will either be under the bondage of sin or enslaved to Christ. Bound to, to wickedness. Or a slave to righteousness. It is. The question is. Who will you be yoked by? This world. Or this Christ. 
But God tells Israel and all those who will believe that he will break the bonds of the oppressor and put upon them a yoke that is what? Light and easy. But it is a yoke. You see, Israel's problem, Israel's problem wasn't that they were in exile. It wasn't that they were under this yoke of other rulers and nations, of worldly kings. Their problem is that they were not willing to be yoked under Yahweh. And so what was their judgment? If they were unwilling to be yoked to God, he would yoke them to foreign oppressors, to worldly kings. This has always been Israel's problem. And Matthew 11 is the fulfillment of God promising to remove this yoke of bondage. Not, per se, the bondage of the Babylonians, but to remove the bondage of their slavery to sin. The bondage to the Babylonians was just the consequences of their unwillingness to submit to God. And so he sends the son of David, the king of kings, not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow sin and death. The only way to remove them from true oppression. And he calls them. This is Jesus saying to them, come to me. I am the one that is being raised up. I am the one that will set you free. Come and put my yoke upon you. But Israel's problem is our problem as well. We, as especially 21st century Americans, try to live as free as possible. But I want you to understand, the further from the yoke of God, of Christ, the more shackled you are. But when you willingly... Chain yourself to Christ. You are as free as you ever will be. Apart from Christ, we are slaves. We remained in bondage. And as we sing Israel's strength and consolation, we can join in their praises Because he is our strength and consolation as well when we come to him as he has called us to do. So that ties us back to the history of redemption and what God is doing through Israel, for Israel, and ultimately for all the nations. But there is a little bit of theological work that we have to close up with as well. The second point this morning, a theological point on redemption. Now... As we read verse 28, come to me, Jesus says, if we weren't familiar with this passage and we were just reading it for the first time and we read 25, 26, and 27, and then we read the statement, come to me, we might be a little surprised. Because it would have seemed that he had said prior to verse 28 that no one could come to him. He says, no one knows my father except me. And no one knows me 
the Son except the Father. We saw a quote Wednesday night, and I want to requote it with a little bit of commentary to help us understand the theological dilemma that comes when Jesus says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, uh, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, come to Me. There, we have to understand that the essence of the relationship between the Father and the Son, the thing that, that, that is them, is this union, this knowledge, this relationship, this intimacy that they have and share with no one. And for anyone else to know the Father as the Son knows the Father, or know the Son as the Father knows the Son, for anyone else to share in this knowledge, to be a part of this communion, it is a matter of the R word we've been talking about, revelation. It's a matter of God revealing not just before them, but giving understanding and knowledge within them. And this matter of revelation isn't a right, a natural right for man. This revelation, this knowledge is actually contrary to man's nature because man's nature has been corrupt by sin. We, we thought we talked about that, that, that very thing Wednesday night, just a quick highlight. Man's natural relationship with God post-fall says these three things. Man is separated from the Godhead because of man's offense. It began with Adam and it continues with each and every one of us by choice. And number two, not only have we been separated because of that offense, but then, the, but then sin that has crept in has blinded us to see. And number three, not only has it blinded us to see and understand, but it has infiltrated our affections for God as it has hardened and darkened our heart. So how is one brought into this relationship, this knowledge of the Father and Son that no one has except the Father and the Son? It is a matter of divine choice. It depends on God's will, God's choice. Very like, very much like John, as we looked Wednesday night, when John says or writes Jesus' words in John 6, no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. And later in John 15, I believe, he would say to the disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. But then we have the dilemma. Verse 28, when Jesus says to the crowds, come to me, why would he say that? After all that's been said in 25, 26, and 27, as much of all that is true, 25, 26, and 27, as much as it is biblical, it's simultaneously true and biblical of this very fact that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that, judgment. And who is judged? 
you and I. All people are responsible for our words, our actions, our lives. We all will give account of all of it. As Capernaum will give an account to their rejection of Jesus. Even as the truth has been hidden from them and it pleased God to do so, they will be held in judgment and their judgment will be worse than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. We all will have to answer for the truth that was laid out before us, for the truth that was revealed to us. And there is not a one of you in the hearing of my voice that has not heard the declaration of the Christ, the one who is to come, the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God. And if you reject that, you will stand before God and he will judge you and condemn you on your very rejection of what has been revealed to you. Have you clung to him? To his cross? Have you turned to follow him? It is your responsibility. The, the word has been declared and you must repent. You must response. The time of ignorance God once overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And that man has been raised from the dead. We will all give count to our response to what God has revealed to us. Of course, the objections may race through our minds. But that's not fair. That's unjust. Paul answers that question, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? And the obvious answer, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Well, how does he find fault, we might want to ask. Well, Paul gives us that answer too. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What will the molded say to the molder? Here's one thing I'm absolutely positive of. Those who enter the kingdom of God in Christ will turn and look at him and boast of nothing. And they will look at Christ and say, salvation is of the Lord. You knew me. You called me. You opened up my eyes. You gave me a heart to love you. You gave me a will to obey you. And all the boasting will be in Christ. But I can also promise you this, that those who do not find themselves in the kingdom, they will only be able to point to themselves and their rejection of the glory of Jesus Christ and his gospel. I want to give you a theological exhortation to close this second point. As we, as we consider the doctrine of salvation, as we walk through any 
passage in the scriptures. We consider the doctrine of God or man. When we see things that sort of lean one way or the other, we must be biblically balanced. You hold truths that seem contrary to one another, one in one hand and one on the other, and you walk the balance beam. If you dwell on one or the other, you will falter in your understanding. And so what is the best way to be balanced? To know the whole counsel of God from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. And when it leans one way, you lean with it. When it leans the other way, you lean that way. Scripture highlights election and God's sovereign choice. And when it does, we preach it, we love it, we submit to it. When it highlights man's responsibility, we do likewise. Now I have to ask you, are you balanced? Do you ignore one or the other? Or exalt one over the other. I call you to know your scriptures. To be a workman. And be balanced in the truths of God. That's why our, our statement of faith and our catechism are very helpful for us. Because it helps us understand the whole counsel of God. And helps keeps us balanced. They're just tools that are under the authority of Scripture. But help us to know what Scripture teaches. Be balanced. But in order to be balanced, you must know your Bible. You must. Alright, final thought. The heading is A Christmas Conclusion to Matthew 11. Just a few moments here. A Christmas Conclusion to Matthew 11. I want you to write this down on a piece of paper or in the margin of Matthew 11, right around verse 28. I want you to think about this, this Christmas. Christ has come to us. Now we must come to Him. He is the one who is coming into this world. And He stands and makes the declaration in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me. He came to us. He calls us to come to Him. The Gospel of Matthew as a whole... Partly is telling us, revealing to us, who Jesus Christ is. And what does he tell us? He is God. God in the flesh. God with us. Emmanuel. Creator come to creation. But there is the other half of Matthew that as is telling us of who Jesus the Christ is. He's now asking you, what are you going to do with it? 
What are you going to do with the revelation that's come to you through this gospel? Not what are you willing to at minimum say in order to be counted as a Christian, but what are you willing to give, to build on Christ, the cornerstone? As we look again and sort of just quickly at verse 28, 29, and 30, these final verses do seem a lot like, hey, here's what you need to do. But if you truly look at 28, 29, and 30, it's really, this is who you need to know. This is Jesus. And so, when you know, you can't help but to go. And so it's not just, it's not just I, I need to come to him and he's going to give me this. No, this is who he is. He is the only way to God, the only way of rest for our soul, the only mediator between God and man. I love the way our confession of faith says it in, in the chapter or the article on salvation, that not only is he Savior, this Jesus, but he is in, quote, listen to this, Every way qualified to be a suitable and compassionate and all-sufficient Savior. He's suitable. He's the only one suitable. He's compassionate. It's God. And He's come to put on flesh. And He, and he has sympathized with us. And knows us and calls us out of our weariness and our toil. But as he calls us, he is the only one who is sufficient to give us rest. To save our weary, burdened souls. Come to this suitable compassionate, all-sufficient Savior. You who are weary, who are burdened down to the soul, He gives your soul rest. Come to Him. Come to Him, number one, because it is the true expression of faith. Coming to him is the true expression of faith. You get sick, and we're all getting sick this time of the year. You're going to come to the doctor. Why? Because you actually trust and have faith in the doctor. Well, some of you might. But you go believing that this chemical that the doctor is going to give you, that was made up, and over an oversight by the United States government is going to help you. That's that's faith. And you're operating in faith when you go to him or her to the doctor. <laughs> Your heart is desperately sick. Come to him. And he will heal your heart. 
When Jesus says, come to me, he's laid out the criteria for all time, for all people. He's laid this out for eternal life. Who are these Christians, they might ask? Well, they're the ones who have not just come to him, but have bound themselves to him by taking upon his yoke. They do not just come to him, but they submit and bound themselves to him. Who are these Christians? Is this a one-time thing? No. This isn't a come and get it while it's hot, take a bite and walk away. This is a come to him every day, every week. Every moment. It's a life of slavery. To be a slave to God through Jesus Christ. To be bound, to be in bondage to the Holy One of God. To be yoked to Him. It is a life of coming to Christ. He came that we might come over and over again. And there is this constant coming. And when we come to him constantly, something happens. We learn from him. We learn from him. And you know what happens? The more you come to him and the more you learn from him, you become like him. And as we said in our discipleship lesson, the more that you come to him, the more that you learn from him, the more that you imitate him, the more his peace and joy fill you. Secondly, our coming to him is, number one, a true expression of faith, but it is also an acknowledgement. When you come to him, it is an acknowledgement that you're stuck, that you're spinning out. That you're weary. What do you think the life of the non-Christian looks like? (coughs) Here's the life of the non-Christian. It's a two-wheel drive pickup sunk down deep in the mud. Ramming the gas and all that's happening. The tires are spinning and no one's going anywhere. The motor is bearing down, heating up. All this work is taking place. And they just sit still. And what happens to the motor? What happens to the, to the truck? It breaks down. It can't hang on. It can't carry the weight and the burden of working, 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 and going nowhere. That's the life of the unbeliever. Stuck. Sunk. Working. Coming to Christ says, apart from you, Lord Jesus, I will be stuck bearing this burden, overworked and tired, doing and doing and doing, and nothing to show for it. And you were like, well, look at the bank account. Well, guess what? (laughs) It don't last. Look at my house. Well, that could be gone. With one flame of a fire. But I want us to understand that this reality of being stuck and overburdened and working and working and getting nowhere is not just true about the unbeliever. But it's also true for the believer who's unwilling to bring part of their life to Christ when they come to him. 
I'm going to say that again. If you're a Christian and you come to Christ, but you leave your marriage behind, you cannot carry that. You think you can parent apart from submission, putting yourself under the yoke of Christ? It will crush you. If you're not bringing every aspect of your life to Christ when you come to Him, all of those areas of your life will remain unmovable. And dealing with them will feel like carrying mounds and mounds of weight and going nowhere. If you feel exhausted in your parenting, well, my question is, is have you brought your parenting to Christ? If you feel overworked and burdened at your workplace, my question is, is are you wearing the yoke of Christ when you go to when you go to work? To be at rest in these areas of life, you must place them at the feet of him. Trusting in Him. And that doesn't mean you said it and forget it. What does it mean to bear the yoke of Christ as a, as a husband? It means to be obedient to the Word of God when it speaks to you about how you are to be a husband. You want to, you, you want, you want to, to be unburdened and have rest at work? Stop gossiping. Stop grumbling and complaining. Put on the yoke of Christ and submit to Him. And He will give you rest, even at work. Trust Him and the results to Him. Now, lastly, quickly. When we come to Him, it's an expression of our faith. It's an acknowledgement of our uh, our. Uh, weariness and stuckness but when we come to him it is true worship it's true worship he has come in the flesh humiliated himself and what he is owed is our life of worship a sacrifice, a living sacrifice. We must bow down to Him when we come to Him and say, there is no other gods before me. We must submit and serve Him. It's not just an invitation to come and get a nap. It's an invitation to submit everything to Jesus Christ. Remember, all things in verse 26 or 7, whatever, 27, all things have been given to him by the Father. You want rest? You give him all things because he has all things in his hand. Born thy people to deliver Born a child and yet a king. Born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit. Rule 
in our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, yours alone, Jesus Christ, raise us to your glorious throne. This is Christmas. He has come to us that we might come to him. And I close just with the simple reading of Philippians chapter 2. Come to Christ, for he is the only way to have rest for your soul. Confess him as king, Jesus Christ the Lord. Be saved from the bondage of sin, delivered into life, and be a servant, a slave to Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, for it is him who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Christ, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the church says, Amen. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, rule in our hearts. And raise us in the sufficient merit of Jesus Christ to your glorious throne. Cause us to see our weariness and our vain work. And let us find rest in thee. In Jesus name.